that is here in person, those of you that are watching online, we're so grateful that you have joined us tonight. We're going to continue in our study of the subject which is so important, of physical healing in the body. And uh, as we do that, well, we've already prayed. As we do that, this is, we're, we're approaching this from a particular point of view. I've taught this many times. I, in fact, I did it about a year ago. But I really, God, God has been working in my heart to give me an understanding of why this is so important. Because it's an insight into the character and nature of God. So much of the church teaches, and so much of the, so many of the theologians and the, uh, in seminaries teach us that God's, it's not God's will to heal today. That passed away with the apostles. That was just for that first century until I just was reading some great theologian yesterday. But once the Bible was given to us, we don't need that anymore. Uh, I don't find that anywhere in the Bible that it says that. And uh, as one preacher I listen to says, if, you're, if it's, if it's going to be scriptural, you've got to have scripture for it. And I don't find any scripture for that. Not only that, the purpose for which it is given haven't changed. But it, 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 it communicates something to us about God's character and nature towards us. If God were so merciful to the Old Testament saints, if God was so merciful to those that were alive during Jesus' ministry and had the benefit of his ministry, why would he be so much more merciful to them and hold something back from us? This fact, the scripture says just the opposite. Romans 8.32, and I was saved on this scripture years ago. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also together with him freely give us all things? That verse is telling us that if God did not hold Jesus back from us, there's nothing else that he has that he's held back from us. And so it tells us about the character of God. As I was writing home the other day after meditating on some of this myself, not even preparing for tonight. And this just has to do with the way my mind works. God is so good. The Holy Spirit will work with you just the way your your mind works. And my mind works like a lawyer, so it's strange. Um, But but God was showing, the Holy Spirit was showing me, because I have trouble, I'm not saying it's wrong, I have trouble just picking verses. Someone says, I got this verse for you, I got that, that's great, that's nice, thank you very much. But that doesn't do much for me. And, and I saw why going home. Healing verses are great, and they're good to meditate on. They're good to listen to. Uh, and we may talk about this next time. I've been in hospital rooms with people that were very sick, and they're, they're playing CDs of healing scriptures. And that's wonderful, but two things about that. That's not the time to begin to put it in you. And secondly, just listening to scripture verses is good, but just listening to them, isn't good enough. You've got to get it in you. We're going to talk about that next time. But, but what the Lord, what Spirit, Holy Spirit was showing me, he says, what you need to see is you need to see the character of God so that these scriptures come out of that character and that's easier to, for you to accept them. And that's one of the reasons I believe that this is so important for us to, to begin to look at this. So we have, we've already looked at a number of things. We've looked at the fact that we're, we're looking at that physical healing what's sometimes called divine healing, is based on the character and nature of God. If it's based on the character and nature of God, his character and nature don't change. Pastor Ray referred to that a few minutes ago. Second thing we've seen is healing is part of the gospel. 
It's part of what Jesus preached. It's what our party is what he's told the church to preach. And that's part of why I believe we're doing this now. God's heart and God's nature is to redeem us from everything that Satan used to destroy us and uses to destroy us. And last time we began to look at, we traced how God's nature was revealed through his healing relationship with Israel. And we finally saw that God's nature is revealed through Christ as the image and character of God. Jesus said to Philip, as, as in the last time he had with them at the upper room, Philip, he said to him, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And we looked at this last week, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Believe, if only for the sake of the works themselves. So Jesus is saying, if you want to know what the Father's like, look at me. And then Hebrews 1.3, we're going to put this up there. I spent some time meditating on this this week. This is the beginning of Hebrews. Who... This is referring to Christ, being the brightness of his glory. We talked about this last week. That literally means an outshining of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. And I was reading through and meditating on some uh, scriptures that I had put together in, a, in some notes that I had, and I'm saying they read differently. And I used to use, years ago, I used to use the New American Standard, and it's based on a different, uh, on a different um, Greek te- translation. And I looked and said something different. It says the express image of his, of his nature. So I looked it up. That word person is a word that means substance, essence. So what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Christ is the express image. That word image is a word that means what you can see on the outside. It's not looking inside. It's looking at their outward actions. He was the express outward image of the Father's nature and character, the essence of who the Father is. So tonight what we're going to look at, and we ended with this last week, I told you the two more things we need to look at. So what we're going to look at tonight is that physical, is physical healing a part of the atonement of what Christ accomplished on the cross? And the reason this is important because it has to do with whether or not we can have certainty that it's God's will to heal. And here's why that is so crucial, so crucial, as I've listened and studied what other people think about healing, and I, I realize what they're so often doing is they're undercutting the very thing that's necessary. Jesus taught his disciples, and the Bible also teaches, that in order to receive from God his promises or anything else, the one thing he consistently said it requires is you must believe that promise. In fact, he said you must believe that you have received it. James chapter 1 makes it clear. This isn't Jesus, this is James. Put that scripture up. James chapter 1. Talking about asking and receiving. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind... Next verse. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Go back to verse 6. So the requirement, he's just told you if you lack wisdom, because he's talking about wisdom here, now he switches to everything. If you lack something, all you must do is ask. The next chapter he says, you have not because you ask not. He said, so what you've got to do is you've got to ask, but you have to ask in faith. That means believing that he's answered that 
with no doubting. Because he who doubts is, a, is like the wave of the sea being tossed about by the winds. Verse 7. Let not man not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Next verse. Oh, go back a second. Go verse 7. Notice it doesn't say that if you doubt, God is withholding it. I think we read it that way sometimes. He, said it, it, he says, you must ask with no doubting. Because let's not suppose that the man who doubts will receive anything from the Lord. He's not talking about what God will give. So God, if he sees you're doubting, doesn't say, "Ah, they're doubting me, I'm going to hold it back. What doubting does is doubting keeps us from receiving. And look at what the next verse says. Verse 8. Because he's an unstable man, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I used to, when I was a, a young boy, we had a, my mother, she still does, has a place in Maine. And, and when I was growing up, there was a, there was a Coast Guard station uh, right several houses down. And they would practice uh, once a month or so what was called the, 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 the I think it's breaches buoy, where they were, it was a way of transferring a person from one ship to another, where they would literally shoot a line over to the other ship, and they would fasten it together, and they would set somebody on, the man that they were trying to transfer would sit on this seat, and he would be brought, carried over on that line. And if it, but the problem was, if there was very high seas, I've seen movies of them trying to do this, if it was so many waves moving around, they couldn't actually attach it, and it was dangerous to do it. And that's kind of this image I get, because we're trying to receive from God, and we say one moment, yeah, I believe, I believe God's done this for me, and then some symptom rises up, well, no, I don't know about that. And back and forth, in order to receive from God, you have to stand still enough to receive. But the point here is why it's so important that doubt is removed from your heart, which is why it's so important that we have certainty in this promise God has for, of, of healing to us. Mark eleven twenty three and 24, of course, the famous one. Go back to that. It's the one before. I, put, I went out of order. Most assuredly, I said, Jesus is talking here about getting prayers answered. He's just cursed the fig tree. The next day they come past, and the fig tree's dried up from the roots, died from the roots. And Peter's amazed, saying, look, the tree you cursed yesterday is withered up from the roots. And Jesus uses this as a teaching example. He said, assuredly, I said, whoever says to this mountain, he's talking about prayer here, be removed and cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says shall be done, he will have whatever he says. Next verse. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you received it then, and you shall have them. So what these two verses, and there are many more that, that teach us, is the one consistent requirement for receiving anything from God is a certainty and confidence that what we've asked him, we've had. And so we need to have a firm foundation by which we know when we've asked him for something, and here in this context we're talking about healing, that we know God has, it's God's will that we should have it. And so if indeed healing is part of what Jesus paid for on that cross, then it establishes for us, this is very important, it establishes that God has already 
given it. So many times people are praying, asking God to heal them. But what if God already provided it? Then the only thing left is for us to receive something, and that removes all doubt of whether God's done it if he's already provided it for you. It's as, if, it's as if you have a relative that's passed away and they've decided you're not quite responsible enough to handle this million dollars that they have for you. So they put the million dollars in a trust fund and they've appointed someone as a trustee over that fund so that when you get to be a certain age, that money is distributed to you. So that money's already been given. It's just you've got to, the access has, still has to come. So if this is true, If healing, physical healing, was paid for in the atonement on the cross, then there's nothing left for God to do. He's done everything he can do. What's left is for us to receive it, and that changes everything. And when I discovered that, it changed how I saw this. And the third thing it does, this means if healing is something God provided for us on that cross, then listen carefully, then healing is not a promise. It's a fact. It's not a promise that Jesus died for your sins. It's a fact that Jesus died for your sins. Whether you receive it or not is a different matter. If, if healing is in the atonement, then that's just as much a fact as that Jesus paid for your sins. So we're not begging God to do something for us. We're not even standing to believe a promise. We're learning to receive something that God has already done, if indeed healing is in the, in the atonement. That's why this is so important. So let's just get a perspective here before we get into the specific scriptures. This, this is all in the notes. You can download the notes. I don't know if they have them up there yet, but they will. If Jesus healed everyone who came to him, now just, we'll just step back and think about this as a whole is his Christ's life, his ministry, his heart, God's heart. If, if, and we studied this before. Everyone, everyone that came to Jesus when he walked on this earth, everyone that came to him and asked for healing, every one of them was healed. And he healed some that didn't ask. Now, If Jesus healed everyone who came to him and asked, would he not make the same provision for us? What does that say about him that he would heal and have compassion on those that had access to him then? But we who believe in him, who are his brothers and sisters, we don't have access to that same certainty. Because we talked about this before. If you were part of one of those large crowds one of what the Bible calls the multitudes that came to him, and he healed them all. If you were part of that crowd and you needed healing, you would have been healed with all the ones that were healed because you were in that crowd, therefore you would have been healed. So they had a certainty when they went there. They were confident that if you get there, if I just get there, in fact, the woman with the issue of blood said in herself, if I can just get to him and I can just touch the hem of his garment, I shall be healed. And that's one of the greatest proofs to me. Because she went and she touched his garment. She had a flow of blood, an issue of blood for for 12 years. 
She'd been to doctor after doctor. She'd spent all her money on the doctors. They did the best they can, but they hadn't healed her, and she'd grown worse. But she heard about Jesus. She heard that he healed people, and she went to him. And we don't have to go through the whole story. She literally had to crawl to get to him because it was illegal for her to be out in public for two reasons. She was an unaccompanied woman, and she had an issue of blood. And under the law, it was illegal for her to be in public if she had a flow of blood. But she said, if I can just get to him and I can touch his garment, I know I will be healed. And she did that as he was passing through in a multitude. He reached, she reached out and either some translations say she grabbed the hem of his garment, but somehow she touched his garment as he went by and she felt power go into her body and she knew that she was healed. She knew that that flow of blood dried up and then Jesus stops There's a crowd of people around. Jesus stops, and he turns around, and he said, who touched me? And the disciples who don't understand what's going on say, Master, what what do you mean who touched you? There's a throng of people around you reaching out and trying to touch you like some celebrity walking through a crowd. No, no, no. He said, no, this was different. He said, when that touch kept me, I felt power go out of me. And so he asked, who touched me? And they part, and this woman comes and falls down before him, and tells him what she's done. And Jesus said, listen to this, your faith made you well. But listen to this. Think about the order. Jesus is walking along. She touches him. She feels power go into him. He feels power go out of him. And he turns around and he says, who touched me? Think about that. If, if God only heals certain people, then how did Jesus know whether she was one of those people when he didn't even know who touched him? That woman was healed before he knew who touched him. Why? Because her faith reached out and touched what was available to everybody else in that crowd. So, what we're talking about is that, that why it's important to have this certainty. So if Jesus healed everybody who came and asked him, and some that didn't, would he not make sense for us, make provision for us? Two scriptures we're going to look at. Hebrews 10.1. This is comparing what happened in the Old Testament with what we have now in the New Covenant. For the law, the Old Testament, was only a shadow of the good things to come. Remember we studied last week, God made promises to Israel that he would be their physician. God made promises to Israel that if they would serve him, he would remove sickness from their midst, all of them. He made that promise to two different generations. King David in Psalm 103 says, I know what God's like. I know his ways. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. All? That's what he said. The old law, the Old Testament, what they had in the Old Covenant was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of these things. Let's look at the next verse. Let's go to Hebrews 8, verse 6. 
But now, talking about Christ, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. On that cross, he entered into a new covenant with God the Father, which is a better covenant based on better promises. So how could we have less now than they had before if we have a better covenant based on better promises? So I want to establish a foundation for what this all is about on the cross. Healing in the Old Testament and the New Testament is based on the atonement for sin. The word atonement is an Old Testament word which means to cover something over, hide or cover over. And although that's often used in the New Testament, really the concept in the New Testament is our sins are not atoned for, they're remitted, which means they're removed. But under the Old Testament, they were atoned for. Sin was atoned for under the Old Testament. Now sin, we've learned, is the root of all sickness. There was, God did not create headaches in the, New Te- in the Garden of Eden. God didn't create cancer and say it was good. All of that came into, into the curse of the, into the earth when, when man rebelled against God and a curse was released into the earth. So sin is the root of all sickness. And therefore, sin, man's sin has opened the door to Satan. Now, that doesn't mean if you've got sickness in your body that you sinned. But sin is in the world, and sin brings sickness with it, unless you know how to resist it. Okay. Therefore, the removal of sickness to be fully effective must involve the removing of the root, which is the sin. When I was a, growing up, my mother was quite a horticulturist, and one of our jobs was to, to take care of the lawn. And in the springtime, our lawn had a tendency, which many of our lawns do, to grow these little, green, little yellow flowers. Except my mother didn't call them flowers, she called them dandelions. So she would say, your job is to go out and remove the dandelions. That's easy. I just ran over them with a lawnmower. It was nice and simple. The problem is they came back. Why did they come back? I would do that with the weeds in the garden. I just cut the weeds off. The problem is the weeds come back because they didn't get the root out. So in order to get rid of the fruit, you've got to get rid of the root. And we're going to see that the healing in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, is based on atonement. It's based on the sin being taken care of. So we're going to look at some, uh, we're going to look at some Old Testament types of the cross. God had promised Israel, we saw this last week, that he would be their healer. Exodus 15, 16, he said, if you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and keep my commandments. Instead, he said this was an ordinance and a covenant he was making with them. I will put none of the diseases on you which I put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. One of the redemptive names of God is Jehovah Rapha, which means I am your healer. I am your physician. We saw that just as they served, just as they lived in Egypt, and they lived in Egypt was a land that had very sophisticated scientists, very sophisticated medical practice. So their idea of being healed was 
the, the best that man could do at that time. And God was saying to them, I know you know that, but I want to be your physician. I want to be the God of every year of your life. I want to be your physician. So this is back when the children of Israel first come out of Egypt. And then he said later on, he said, and I will remove sickness from your midst. He said that twice to two different generations. If thus you shall serve me, and I will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst, and the number of your days I will fulfill, even promises that you won't, you won't cast your, your young before their time. There'd be no miscarriages. He, he made that promise. This is the Old Testament to two different generations. And he made it to all of the people that were part of his covenant. Each covenant promise to heal was connected to obedience to his word. The sickness that they experienced was tied to their disobedience. We're going to see this in a minute. God's healing them was through an act that was an atonement for their sin. So whenever God, whenever they, as a nation, would sin, we'll see a couple of examples where, where sickness broke out among them. And, and, and God's answer when they cried out for deliverance was for them to perform something that would amount to an atonement for their sin. And when their sin was atoned, God could now remove the sickness. So this is the basic concept of sickness and disease. The root of it is sin. Not necessarily your sin, but sin that's in the world. One of the Because there are some people that say, well, if you're sick, you must have sinned. Well, we've had some plants that were diseased. We've had animals die. What did they sin? So it's because there's sin in the world. The world is under a curse. doesn't take much discernment nowadays to discern that. The world is under a curse, and we're living in that world that's under that curse, and without proper understanding and without knowing how to handle it, that sin, the result of that sin, that sickness, wants to get in your body and destroy you. And so we're looking at what God did in the Old Testament and how they're tied together. All right. So let's look at a couple of these. Let's go to number 16. The background here is that Moses has been chosen by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land. Aaron is his brother. Aaron's the high priest. And there are several, one man of the tribe of, of Levi, which was the priestly tribe, got someone else together. This was named, man's name was Korah. And they decided that the rest of the nation was just as holy as Moses. So there's jealousy. And they start thinking, well, God will hear us just as much as he'll hear Moses. So what they're basically doing out of pride is they're rebelling against the authority that God has established for this nation. Uh, later on, Aaron and his sister do the same thing. And what happens is they challenge Moses, and, and Moses, <laughs> Moses was an, he's an amazing picture of a leader. Moses' brother Aaron and his sister say, well, what, what's so special about you that God's going to use you? So they're basically challenging God's judgment to use their brother. The moment they say that and accuse God, Moses goes on his face and starts interceding for them. Say, God, be merciful to them. And God calls them out of the tent. And immediately, 
Moses' sister Miriam becomes leprous because she's now opened herself up by her rebellion to the leprosy. It's not that God put it on her. See, when they sinned, that exposed them. Their defense against the curse was removed. There was a breach in that defense, and the sickness can get in. And so Moses intercedes for her. So here's an example. Korah has the same attitude. Well, what's so special about Moses? And he challenges Moses and gets, I think it's about 250 other of them together to rebel against Moses, and God comes down to judge them. And he has it done through Moses, and Moses declares that if these men die a natural death, then God hasn't chosen me. And no sooner does he say those words when the earth opens up and swallows them all. That'll get your attention. For challenging the person God put in authority. What if God did this today? Well, what goes on in churches? I was reading that today, and I just think, oh, God, you're so merciful. You're so merciful. The people in churches that talk about their pastor, that challenge the authorities that God's put over their lives, and not just the pastor, and seemingly get away with it. In the Old Testament, the earth opened up, and they were swallowed. (laughs) It's one way to remove them from the camp. But what happens is, the rest of the people get mad now. And they start complaining. And that's what this is about. On the next day, all of the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and said, you killed the people of the Lord. Isn't this... See, when we, get, when we start getting outside of the heart of God, it's amazing the thoughts people will entertain. Moses didn't do this. Korah and the 250 that followed him, they did that to themselves. But now they're blaming Moses and Aaron. You killed the people of the Lord. Keep going. Now it happened that when the congregation had gathered against against Moses and Aaron and that they turned towards the tabernacle, the meeting, the church, and suddenly the cloud, this is the presence of God, covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Verse 43. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the meeting. Keep going. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. <laughs> when you hear your name and when God, when God speaks your name and the word consume in the same sentence, that's not good. <laughs> Get away from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment and they fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, take a censer and put fire in it from the altar and put incense in it. This is how they part of their worship. And take it quickly to the congregation and make an atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord and the plague has begun. So a plague breaks out. Now listen carefully. They're complaining. We're going to see another case. They're feeling sorry... Self-pity is so dangerous because it is, a, it is Satan's 
opening to your heart in order to put into your heart ultimately rebellion. And he's not playing around. It feels good to our flesh. It feels, oh, you poor thing. Nobody understands you. They passed over you at work. This person gave you a funny look. He's saying these things about you on Facebook. You're not getting what you deserve. By the way, you don't want to get what you deserve. And all these things pet our flesh. And that's Satan trying to get us to open our heart to him. And that's what they did. And the result, this is back under the old covenant. A plague broke out among them. And so what did God instruct them to do? So he put incense, put, uh, he, he, so he put in the, put in the incense and made atonement for the people. Go ahead. Is that it? Nope. And he stood between the dead and the living. Think about this. You've got bodies all over the place and you've got others that are afraid over here and Moses and Aaron stand between the dead people and the living with this censer, which is worship. And he stood between the dead and the living, and so the plague, and so the plague was stopped. Next verse. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. Last verse. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting, for the plague had stopped. There's a connection here between their sin and the sickness, and then there was an atonement made for their sin. And once their sin was atoned for, their he- the plague stopped. Let's look at another example. Oh, so by the way, so Moses, what he's doing is he's standing between the dead and the living. And that's what Christ has done. He stands between death and life. Between eternal death and eternal life. Between the death that Satan wants to bring. John 10.10, Satan comes but to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And so they're, they're standing, they're mediators. A mediator stands between two groups and bridges the gulf between them. And so Moses and Aaron are standing between them with the atonement to stop the plague. Let's go to um, Numbers 21. Verse 4. This is further along. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Watch the progression here. Their soul became discouraged. Well, what's wrong with discouragement? Everybody experiences discouragement. I understand we experience it, but be very careful because discouragement is a seed being planted. Because what's discouragement come from? There's no hope. And it's all about me. Things aren't working out right. There's no hope. Nothing's happening, which is basically saying God is not taking care of us. So the people, this, so they, first of all, go back to verse 4. I'm going to show you the end again. They became very discouraged on the way, verse 5, the next step. And so the people spoke against God and Moses. So now they start complaining. If that discouragement gets down in your heart, 
the next thing we'll do is complaint will come out of your mouth. And they spoke against God and against Moses, saying, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Wait a minute, they said there's no food, and they're complaining about the bread. So obviously there was bread. And we know from our studies is that God provided this bread for them. Every morning and every night, and then when they complained there was no meat, God provided quail, and it's all free. Now, he may not have given them a menu with hors d'oeuvres, a main course, and dessert, but if you look through Deuteronomy 7, he's training them to learn to trust him, and they failed the test. And so they're complaining about the food God's giving them free. It's like complaining about our lot in life. Complaining about something when God has given us life. Every breath we breathe is a gift from God. Every beat of our heart is a gift from God. And when we forget these things, we forget the grace of God, that the life of us, the the fact that we're alive today is God's grace and mercy. Every one of us would have a testimony that we really shouldn't be alive for whatever reason, even if it's just the sin in your life. And we complain and we feel sorry for ourselves. And just think what that sounds like to God when he looks at his son on the cross and sees what he paid for you and me. They spoke against God, against Moses. Why have you brought us out to Egypt to die in the wilderness? This is what happens when you get on a roll. I'm never going to make it. I'll die. And then there's no food, no water, and our soul hates this worthless bread. Okay, keep going. So Lord sent fiery serpents. That's poisonous snakes. I know it says the Lord sent them, but I really believe it's their sin manifests. Because they're out in a wilderness. Where did these snakes come from? They're out there in this wilderness. So God's covenant with them was, I believe, this is my belief, was protecting them in the wilderness. And when they step across this line, their protection came down. And now their sin manifests. I want you to get this scene. They're in a camp of several million people and there are thousands of poisonous snakes slithering through the camp, under the tents, into the tents, around people's legs. And they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. So you you know who the serpent represents. The serpent, Satan. And snakes represent sin. So their sin is manifested and it's now biting them and it's killing them. Next verse. Therefore the people came to Moses and we said, we have sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. So here's the first step. They repent. They acknowledge their sin. And not just that they've sinned against God, but they've sinned against their leader. For we have sinned and we have spoken against the Lord and we've spoken against you, pray the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Now, this is again the character, the godly character of Moses. Over and over again, he does things like this. Most of us would say, you want me to pray for you now? God, get them. (laughs) The most vivid scene of this is in Exodus 32, when Moses is on the mountain with God. 
And God's giving him the Ten Commandments. And while God's giving him the Ten Commandments, his brother Aaron is downstairs, down at the base of the camp, helping the people violate the First Commandment. And Moses comes down, sees what they're doing, takes the commandments God has written by his own finger, throws them down and breaks them. He, 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 he deals with the people. He goes back up in the mound, and now God's fuming. And Moses is talking to God, and God says, basically what God says, I want you to step aside because I'm going to fry them to a puddle of grease. I've had it with them. And I'm, listen to this, and I'm going to start over with you. Now, this people have done nothing but make Moses' life miserable. They've complained about him. Everything that they, they think should have happened that didn't happen, they blame Moses. And now God's saying, he's vindicating Moses. You're a righteous man, but those people, I've had it with them. It's as God was, was angry. And Moses stands up to God and says, you can't do that. Now think of this. Moses, I love you. You're a good man. That bunch of turkeys, I'm getting rid of them, and you and I are going to start over with the new people. Now if you weren't humble, that would go to your head. And all the thoughts, all the trouble they've given you, all the things they posted on Facebook and Instagram, all the emails you, that, that you've seen, all the things that have been said about you, and they come to mind, and, he's, and God's saying, and I, now I'm going to do this. And Moses says, no, you can't. Because what is the world going to think that you couldn't get your own people from Egypt into the promised land? That's the humility of this man. So Moses prayed for the people. Next verse. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. What that literally means is a bronze. Make form a, a bronze image of a snake and then set it up on a pole. Now, to order to understand this, you've got to understand that in the Old Testament, certain colors meant something, certain materials meant something. And bronze represented sin that was judged, judgment. And the snake represents sin. So this image of a snake made out of bronze represents their sin, which you can now see slithering through the, through the camp. That means that sin's judged. And notice they put it on a pole and lifted it up. And here's the key. So it shall be that everyone who is bitten, notice God didn't say, if you just look at it, you won't be bitten. Everyone that's bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Now just get the picture of this. It's one thing to sit here and look at this and think about it. But just imagine... If I, if, I, if I signaled to, to Brendan in the back, I said, it's time, and he brought in this big barrel of copperhead snakes. And he brought them down in the middle of the aisle, and he just dumped them loose, and they start slithering all under the chairs in here. I doubt you'd all sit as calmly as you are right now. So imagine being in this camp, and there's thousands of snakes, poisonous, deadly snakes, and they're biting people around you, and they're dying. Now notice what they had to do to live. If you're bitten, what were you commanded to do? 
Not look, oh, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I've been bitten and I see everybody around me dying. No, he said, if you look at the judgment for your sin, you'll live. Imagine how hard that must have been if you're bitten and you can feel the poison starting to go up your leg. But Moses said, but if I keep looking at that serpent, by the way, look at here doesn't mean take a quick glance at. It means a steady, concentrated focus. Never take your eyes off it, off that, off that serpent, on that pole. If you do that, then that poison will not kill you and you will live. So notice it's tied. It's tied to the, to the atonement for their sin. And just in case we're not sure of that, in John chapter 3, Jesus makes this very clear. Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus, I forgot to have you put that up. Can you find John 3, 14 and 15? Oh, you, that's good, you're ahead of me. So Jesus is explaining to, to Nicodemus that you must be born again. He's talking about the new birth, and so he's going to use this as an example of what the new birth does. As Moses lifted up the serpent, and this is Jesus talking now, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what we just studied, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, verse 15, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus is making clear that what God told Moses to do was a type and shadow of the cross. So their healing, their deliverance, was tied to the forgiveness of their sin, which was paid for by a, a type and shadow of the cross. So that, that type of the cross healed them. How much more what's called the anti-type or the real thing itself? And we'll look at that in, in, in just a minute. One other example, we're not going to go through all this. In Leviticus 14, don't, you don't need to put them up there. Leviticus 14, 1 through 35, is the, is the, is the story of what the, the priests were told to do if somebody were healed of leprosy. They were to present themselves outside the camp because lepers had to live outside the camp. And they were to present themselves at the door of the camp and the, and the priests would come out and examine them. And if they were found to be clean then the priest would take them through a ceremony before they could come back into the camp. It involved two birds. One of the birds was, 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 was uh, slaughtered. Its blood was then washed on the other one, if I remember correctly. And one, but very clearly represents the sacrifice on the cross. Remember when Jesus heals the ten lepers and he tells them to go present them to the priest? And when he heals the single leper that came down, when he came down, all the, go show yourself to the priest and follow through the ritual that the law says you're to follow through. And that is a clear type or example of the cross. All right, with that as background, let's go look at it, look at that now. So let's go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, we talked about last week that Jesus went around and healed everybody that came to him. We've already mentioned that tonight. So what happens... What happens? Jesus did this. What happens to us? You and me. We're 2,100 years later, 2,000 years later. It's great that he did that on the cross, but what does that do for me now? 
I couldn't be there among the crowds that he healed everybody. So am I just left out? And that's not the character and nature of God. So here we see in Isaiah 53, Isaiah was probably, Isaiah, the, the, the book of Isaiah is known as the Old Testament Gospels. And this chapter in particular, all theologians agree, portrays what was done, what was accomplished on the cross from the Spirit's point of view. Isaiah may not have understood what he was writing, but this is the Holy Spirit's revelation of what was being accomplished on the cross. And we're only going to take part of it that relates to what we're talking about. This is the New King James Version. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, obviously, that's for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities, our sins. The chastisement for our peace, that's our soul, the peace for our soul was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Go back to verse 3. There's a problem here. Because this is talking about how Jesus bore for us our sins. The reason he didn't just pay for them, he took them upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. He didn't just pay for our sin. He took it upon himself and suffered the punishment for the sin. So what does this have to do with healing? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We despised that we did not esteem him. But surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is what the New King James says. This is what the King James says. And the Revised uh, Standard says. But in the Revised Translation, there's a footnote. There's a footnote by griefs and says that word actually literally means sicknesses. And there's a footnote by sorrows which says that word actually means pains. So let's look at this in a little more detail. Um, the, word for, the word for sorrows is a Hebrew word, machab, which literally means to be in pain, physical pain. And the word griefs is a Hebrew word, koli, K-H-O-L-E-E, which literally means to be sick. There are 24 places in the Old Testament where that word is used. And 20 of those times, it's translated physical sickness. Three of the times, it's translated griefs, but, but sickness, but in a way that could imply it's not a physical sickness. So, the word born, let's look at, let's look at um, the Young's literal translation. This is a translation by, by Dr. Young, which is, literally takes the words of the, of the old Bible and translate them. So this is his translation. He is despised and left of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sicknesses. As one hiding his face from us, he is despised and we esteemed him not. Next verse. But surely our, our sicknesses he bore, has borne, and our pains he has carried them, and we have esteemed him plagued, 
plagued and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace is on him. And by his bruise, singular, there is healing to us. There is healing to us. I want to read a couple of other translations. And if you want these, they're in in the notes, which I'll make sure if they've not been uploaded that they will be. This is the World English Bible. And I'm, I'm going through, and there are others I could do, but just to show you that there are other translations that translate this based on what the literal tr- words say. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of suffering and acquainted with disease. He was despised as one from whom men hide their face, and we did not respect him. But surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our suffering. Yet we considered him plague struck by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The complete Jewish Bible. People despised and avoided him, a man of pains and acquainted with illness, like someone from whom people turned their faces. He was despised and we did not value him. In fact, it was our diseases he bore and our pains which he suffered. Yet we regarded him as punished, stricken and afflicted by God. He was wounded because of our crimes. He was crushed because of our sins. The discipline that makes us whole fell on him and by his bruises we are healed. The Christian Standard Bible. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sufferings who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. We in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him and we were healed by his wounds. The Common English Bible. He was despised and avoided by others, a man who suffered a new sickness well. But like someone from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we did not think about him. It was certainly our diseases, he ca- our sicknesses that he carried and our suffering that he bore. But we thought him afflicted, struck bound by God and tormented. But he was pierced because of our rebellions, crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole and by his wounds we are healed. And Isaac Lesser, Isaac Lesser was a Jewish theologian who uh, was well known for his translations. And in 1853, he did a a translation, the first translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into English. And this was the translations that the the Jewish people used, the first one that they had. This was his translation. He was a man of pains and acquainted with disease as one from whom we hid our face, men hid our face. He was despised and we esteemed him not, but surely our diseases did he bear and our pains he carried. Whereas we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The chastisement for our welfare was upon him and by his stripes we were healed. There's an uh, an emphasized Bible written by a man named Rothard M. And it was written so that it's, the way it's entitled, it's written so that uh, we can have a better understanding of the nuances of the text. And this is what, how he translates it. Despised was he and forsaken of men, a man of pains and familiar with sickness. Yet like one from whom the face is hidden, despised, we esteemed him not. 
yet surely our sicknesses he carried. And as for our pains, he bore the burden of them. But we accounted him stricken, smitten of God, and humbled. And yet he was pierced for transgressions that were ours, crushed for iniquities that were ours, and the chastisement for our well-being was upon him, and by his stripes there's healing for us. Uh, this is said, the, emphasis, the emphasized Bible, a translation designed to set forth the exact meaning, the proper terminology, and the graphic style of the sacred original. Of the sacred original. So, now let's look at the other words. Born. It says, surely has borne our sicknesses. That word is nasa. Our sicknesses he has borne. That word, the Hebrew word is nasa, like the space agency. And it means to lift up, to bear away, and convey, and move to a distance. Now in Leviticus, it sets forth on the Day of Atonement what the high priest is to do. And part of this ceremony is he is to take a goat called the scapegoat. And he is to lay his hands on that scapegoat. And he is to symbolically transfer the sins of the nation of Israel from that year to the scapegoat, and it says, and that scapegoat is sent out into the wilderness to bear away the sins of the people, and that's that same word, he bore our sicknesses and our pains. The other word is carried, it's sabal, S-A-B-A-L. It means to initiate an action to relieve another of an unpleasant state or condition. So this is nice. People can disagree with this. There are different translations. But the ultimate answer is the Holy Spirit's own answer. Go to Matthew chapter, go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. little background here, what's going on before this. Jesus has finished in Matthew 4. We see, we saw this earlier. He went about in the cities and towns in Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease among the people. He goes up on the mountain. He teaches the disciples what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down off the mountain in Matthew, the beginning of Matthew 8, and the first person he meets is a leper who comes to him, saying, I know you can heal me, but I don't know if you're willing. Jesus immediately says, I'm willing, reaches out his hand and touched him, and immediately the leper is healed. Then a centurion comes up to him. The centurion says to him, uh, say, my servant lies at home suffering greatly. And before he can finish what he's going to ask him, Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. He didn't even wait to be asked. The centurion says, no, no, no. This is my paraphrase. No, 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 no. That's not what I was going to ask you to do because I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And you don't need to. All you need to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. Why? Because like you, I'm somebody under authority. And I recognize the authority of your words. You just have to say the word. And Jesus marvels at his great faith and says, go as your way because let it be done to you as you believed. And then Jesus comes into Peter's house, finds out that Peter's mother-in-law has a high fever. He lays hands on her. He rebukes the fever. She gets up and she serves them food. And now, uh, then he goes out and he, he, people gather around him, the infirm gather around him, uh, and, and he heals all of them, a crowd gathered, and he heals them all. So every one of these things that just preceded this verse were very clearly physical healings. And this is what the Holy Spirit says through Matthew. He did these things that it might be fulfilled what was spoken through Isaiah the prophets, what we've just spent 20 minutes on, saying himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So the Holy Spirit's own commentary on what Isaiah wrote 
is that it was our infirmities he took and he bore our sicknesses. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is Peter looking back on this. 1 Peter chapter 2. Do you have that there? Oh, I didn't highlight it. I should have highlighted it for you. I'm sorry. Verse 24. Who among himself bore our sins on his own body in the tree. He's really referring back to Isaiah 53. That we having died to sins might live into righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. But yes, Pastor, that's, but that's spiritual healing. No, because the, he, the Greek word there is Iomai. I-A-O-M-A-I. It's 28 times in the New Testament. 25 of those times, it is very clearly physical healing. The other three times, it could be physical or it might be something else. So, what does this say to us? This says to me, who spent much time meditating on this, and, and it makes sense, let's summarize here. That's why I spent the beginning of this lesson tonight laying a foundation. What's consistent with God's character? What's consistent with God's nature? We learned several weeks ago that God doesn't divide things up in categories. That was the Greeks' mentality that did that. But the Hebrews didn't do that. To the Hebrew, in Hebrew language, to be whole is to be whole. To be healed is to be whole, spirit, soul, and body. So God doesn't divide you up into compartments and treat you separately. Although there are different parts of us, to be whole is whole. So I use the example, if you go to a new car sale, new car and buy a new a new dealer and buy a new car and you go to pick it up and, you, and, and it's up on blocks and there's no wheels on it, you say, what, I, I bought a car, where are the wheels? Oh, they're extra. No, the tires should go with, the car's not whole if it doesn't have tires so that the whole thing can operate. And you're not whole, you're not whole and well unless all of you is whole and well, spirit, soul, and God body. We've seen that God does not hold things back, Romans 8, 32. He who spared his own son. But to, so the character of God is not to give things out piecemeal. The character of God is not to hold things back. The character of God is to redeem us from everything that Satan's tried to steal from us through the fall. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that he might destroy the works of the evil one. Sickness and disease is a work of the evil one. How did Jesus destroy the works of the evil one? When on that cross he said, it is finished. So you take all of that context, the character of God, and then you read these verses. And you've got to separate God's character to try to say that this is just spiritual. God's holding something back from us. That's not his character. That's not his nature. And the bottom line is Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the exact image of the Father's nature and essence and character. And Jesus never turned anyone away, and he's not turning us away tonight. What does that mean? That means if what we've talked about tonight is true, and you get that down in your heart, that means it's settled. The issue is not what will God do. God's done everything he can do and ever will do for your healing. That means the rest of it's up to us. 
And that's what we'll look at the next time. Next week I'm not here, but the week after that we will look at that. Now, I was asking, Lord, do you want me to pray for the sick? And I felt the Lord giving me this impression. We need, you need to learn to receive your own healing. Because if I lay hands on you and, and God heals you here, and you go home and something else comes up, you're going to have to come back and I've got to lay hands on you. God would much rather learn you, have you learn to believe him for yourself. Not only that, because then you've got the faith to pray for someone else. So let's stand together tonight, and we're going to, I'm going to pray for you and for all of us. Father, we just ask you to take the things that we've heard tonight. We've heard a lot tonight. And we ask the Holy Spirit to take the seeds that have been sown into us. Some of them may be still stuck in our minds, stuck with old religious teaching, stuck with things that we have experienced, and we're asking you to help us put all those things aside and let this soak down into our heart down into our spirit from where come the issues, the forces of life. Father, may your word penetrate our hearts tonight. May your spirit do what we asked him in the beginning tonight, to deposit in our hearts the truth from you that we know we've heard from you and know from you, not just because Pastor John says it, not just because somebody else says it, but because we now know from you that is true, that we can come to that place of certainty where there's no doubting in our heart, but there's a confidence to receive it for ourselves and to pray for others at work, in our family. Because in this day and age, as we saw in the beginning, this is such a critical part of the gospel. In the book of Acts, they prayed for boldness, that they might proclaim the word of Christ by stretching out his hand to heal. May we have your confidence and boldness to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're watching online or maybe you're here tonight, we never like to close unless we give you an opportunity. If you're visiting or maybe you